This is the Brew World Order Podcast. Welcome to the Brew World Order Podcast. My name is Mike Curtin. If you haven't subscribed yet, come aboard, laddies, and join the gang. This is episode number 37. In this episode, I sit down with Tyler Jones, co-owner of Black Hog Brewing Company in Oxford, Connecticut. Tyler talks to me about how he met his two partners, what to look for when finding a distribution company, and how they came up with the name for their brewery, Black Hog Brewing. Speaking of Black Hog, that reminds me of my favorite nursery rhyme, This Little Pig. You all know it. This little pig went to the market. This little pig picked up some beer. That same little pig went wee 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 all the way home, sat back, cracked open a beer, and enjoyed this podcast. I mean, that's how I remember it. Hey guys, I'm Mike Curtin. This is the Brew World Order Podcast, and today I'm with Tyler Jones, co-owner of Black Hog Brewing Company in Oxford, Connecticut. Brothers Jason and Tom Sobosinski were very big into the food industry. Jason received a master's degree in gastronomy from BU, and not long after started working at Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge, where he learned a lot about cheese. He moved back to New Haven, where he opened his own place, Casey's Formaggio Bistro. Brother Tom got involved and instantly fell in love. They wound up opening the cheese truck together, and it had become one of the top food trucks in New Haven, Connecticut. Tyler Jones had always been into brewing from his early days at college, where he had stumbled upon a home brewing kit in his apartment closet. Brew after brew, he knew this is what he wanted to do with his life. So after graduating from the University of New Hampshire, he attended the Master Brewers Program at UC Davis. After that, Tyler got to work, working at Smutty Nose before landing a job at Portsmouth as the assistant brewer alongside Todd Mott before ultimately becoming the head brewer at Portsmouth. But deep down, Tyler always wanted to open his own place. Tom and Jason became friendly with Tyler Jones through his wife, Rachel, who had been a friend of their family. The three of the great minds got together, and over time, one thing led to another, and they decided they had all the pieces they needed to open a successful brewery. The trio brought the former Calvary Brewing Company in an Oxford industrial park, and in 2014, Black Hog was open for business. And today, I'm with the Lord of Liquid himself, Tyler Jones. Tyler, thank you so much for being with me, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, um, you had worked in many different breweries, but obviously never your own until owning Black Hog. What was the biggest change for you as far as brewing went and like putting your heart into into, uh, your beer? The thing that I really loved about the Portsmouth Brewery and eventually becoming the head brewer there was just total recipe development freedom where I was able to brew 70, 80 different styles a year and um, just be rotating through and just put them on tap and not have to worry about the whole distribution chain of it. Right. Um, I always kind of mentioned like brewing is, you know, 50% art, 50% science. Uh, but then once opening Blackout Brewing Company, it had kind of morphed into 50% art, 50% science, and 50% business, which I don't know how we got the 150, but that was kind of the biggest change for me, <laughs> just trying to really figure out the business side on top of keeping uh, the beer super fresh and interesting along the way. Right. You were open for about, I guess, six years or so before this whole COVID thing hit. How harshly did it affect your business? Yeah, I mean, COVID's been uh, been crazy. Uh, the, I mean, the one thing that we got lucky, we were in, like you mentioned, we opened up in Oxford, Connecticut, which is uh, 
you ever been to Connecticut? It's in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. Which yeah. Is, it's nice and scenic. Um, I love but it. We, we, were fo- we were focusing very hard on uh, distribution because of that. You know, our station was doing, you know, doing some business for us and, you know, making the fun money on the extra, the extra fun money on the side. Uh, but we were basically forced into having to, you know, put money into a new canning line and, um, like, like that did high quality package beer that was shelf stable and DO meter and like really making sure that our, our beer, our package beer going out the door was super fresh. Cause that's where the, the bulk of the people trying Black Hog was. Uh, was either at their local bars, which again, COVID's a totally different story on that. Right. But, uh, out of the package store, you know, so that's kind of our saving grace, I think, where we weren't 100% focused and, um, basically we didn't, not that we didn't need it, but we, we can make buy with just going to distro. And we were set up to go to distro. Uh, so that's kind of how we've gotten, been getting through COVID is just everything is going into cans and going out the door. Uh, whether, whether it's, uh, to a distributor, uh, or we'll do, we actually have started the statewide delivery because they opened that up for us, which has been super helpful. So we have uh, a guy that goes out every Wednesday and every Friday going out just delivering beer straight from the brewery straight to your doorstep. That's awesome. Yeah. So dur- during that process of, of, of opening your brewery, I mean, you guys all got together and decided on it and um, from basically purchasing and coming up with your business plan and everything, what was the most challenging part for you before you actually opened the doors to the public? I mean, again, I was I came in a little on the naive side on the business, which is uh, was kind of the most challenging part for me. Um but luckily, I had really good business partners that are business savvy and were able to get me get Black Hog to where it is today. The truth is, the the name was really hard in the beginning. I mean, we, we thought up this great idea, we had it, and then everything we googled was already a beer a brewery's name somewhere. You know, right? Um, so that's kind of where Black Hog ori- originated from. Where Jason, you know, has a chef by trade and has his in the food world, and he loves throwing parties. The, the food of choice he likes to do for that large large crowd is a uh, a whole hog roast. And uh, the hog he likes to use is the Berkshire hog. Right. Which has jet black hair, um, really great fat marbling. It's like made to do these pig roasts. Um, and the Berkshire hog's nickname is Black Hog. So it's Black Hog Brewing Company kind of originated from that friends and family and food and sharing of, sharing of beers together. Gotcha. I'm curious how this kind of went down. I know you were introduced through your wife to your partners. How did that whole thing kind of come together where you it was like yeah let's do this let's open a brewery together yeah my wife Rachel um her dad or my now father-in-law Steve and uh big Tom as he's known uh because Tom so the sense officially Tom Jr. because his father's name Tom right uh so my father-in-law Steve and big Tom worked together at uh worked together in the 70s so they grew up just knowing each other uh my brother-in-law played soccer against Jason in high school you know back and forth. I still to this day, um, Jason's parents and my, my in-laws get together and they have dinner once a, once a month. Awesome. Um, so they're, you know, real good friends growing up. Right. And, um, when I was dating Rachel, uh, and, you know, starting getting serious, you know, we hadn't proposed yet, but you could, the writing was on the wall. Um, my father-in-law was like, you need to meet Jason because he talks about cheese. Like you talk about beer, you know, he's not, uh, not a beer <laughs> guy, but just like, with the passion and the understanding and able to talk about it like fluently. And, um, so I went and visited Casius. Um, I was dropped off some 22 ounce beers that I brought down to share with the family and 
dropped him off at the bar. He happened not to be in at the time. And, um, but when I got home, I got a Facebook message from Tom. He's like, hey, thanks so much for dropping off those beers. Um, I was really, actually was hoping to try to run into you while you were down here. But, um, you know, which I'd love to come up to Portsmouth and kind of shadow you for a day or two and kind of see how the pros are doing it. And that kind of sparked in my head. I was like, like, are they looking to maybe open a brewery or brew pub or something? So I reached back out. They're like, yeah, we were kind of tossing around the idea. And I was like, well, I'm kind of tossing around the idea to move my family to Connecticut because I kind of want to have some family support for my uh, my son at this point. If you didn't realize we were pregnant with our second. Um, right, right. And, you know, that, that Facebook message turned into an email, turned into multiple phone calls and business plans and, we just got running from there. Awesome. So how did you guys go about uh, finding the capital to to fund this business? We have a bunch of investors that came in and they, you know, they're all officially partners of Black Hog and sharing sharing all the the proceeds as we go along. Um, but it basically we use the same plan that Jason has used to open the all of his other business his, his other business where you know kind of having friends and family and, you know, buy into shares. And it was, there was some overlaps to some of his other businesses, but I mean, along the way where I had my, my, my father, my father-in-law are all invested in the company. And, uh, just big thing was just getting friends and family together and having them believe in our dream. Right. What's something you never thought you were going to have to deal with when being the owner of a brewery? Yeah. I mean, I, I knew, you know, the business side, you have to, you have to deal with distributors but I didn't realize how in-depthly I'm dealing with the sugars at this point. Um, it's just a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts, you know, getting beer out the door, um, never mind getting it sold on the shelf once it hits the package store. Um, I mean, that's something, coming from uh, Ports of Brewery, it was, I'd make a beer, I'd put it in a serving tank, and I'd go upstairs, and I'd sit next to the people drinking it, and right. talk to them about it. And that was it. That's all I had to worry about. And right. making sure that that 85 feet of beer line was clean. And that I could make sure that they're enjoying the beer with uh, Black Hog and going to distribution is, you know, I have complete control until it leaves my do- my warehouse dock. So then it's like, all right, so now I got to worry about all these different distributors, how they're keeping the beer in their warehouses. Right. Um, then, like, once that beer is made it to uh, a package store, is that beer in the cooler? Is it on the shelf? Like on the shelf, trap trap line too is something where it's people make have to clean their lines to make the beer taste good and. and it's, there's so many more layers of control that I just don't really have that I used to have doing in the brew pub land, which is, you know, I've learned to, I've learned to live with and distribution wise, actually we shrank since COVID hit, obviously, but we're going to, you know, eventually happen in the past. We distributed from Maine all the way down to DC. It's like something really, it really hit the fan. I can literally jump in my truck, drive there and fix it. You know, like I still kind of the back of my head have that, mental control of saying, hey, I can, if I really do, I can get in a car and fix it, you know. Right. You uh, have been talking a lot about uh, distribution. Um, is there one big thing that you would tell people uh, that are dealing with distributors, like one big thing to look for when uh, looking for a distributor? I mean, it's really kind of depending what type of brewery you're opening. Um, I mean, when we bought Calvary, like we walked into a brewery that was installed and running that had a, you know, four 30-barrel fermenters and a 30-barrel bright. So I was like, well, we're making we're making some big volumes of beer here, so we have to have distributors. 
Right. We have to have the distribution partners to make sure that the beer, the people that come to our tasting room are drinking fresh beer. Because if you're making 30 barrels of beer and trying to self-distribute it over multiple different brands, you know, it's just such a, such a bigger nightmare because you just can't, I mean, you can't, it's hard to get through it uh, quickly enough to make sure that every ounce of beer being sold is fresh. That's the double-edged sword of the distributor. They help with the volume and getting the beer out, and they actually, they deliver the beer for you. Rather than us as a company having to go door-to-door, dropping off one keg, writing one invoice, and then at the end of the month trying to track down these 843 invoices that are overdue, and then go back and get our kegs back from those spots. You know, it's just, now we, it goes out, it goes to a warehouse at a distribution center, the distributors take care of all that for us. So that's kind of the convenience of having the distributor. Right. Then they have all of that in place. They're hitting these bars multiple times a week to make sure that, that all your uh, restaurants and package stores are getting the freshest beer possible. I mean, that's, that's the advantage of the distributor. They're able to help you get your volume up. But if, I mean, if you're starting, if you're starting on a small place and not having huge, trying to make huge batches, self-distribution works great. But, you know, you just gotta, cause you are, you are making that better margin on those cases or, Tanks going to the stores, but you're selling less of them, so it's kind of that. Right, right. You're not doesn't matter really what you're looking at. What you're looking to do as a brewery. Right, you're not really paying the middleman, but you're you're putting less out there. Yeah, and like also like you think about just labor costs too. Like if you're if you're running if you're self distributing, like you're running your own distributor, so you you have to have the trucks, you have to have the guys physically driving those around and dropping them off and and picking up those kegs and pulling old beer off the shelves and but there's it's it's just the labor side of it you're adding one or two people just to do your distribution of your beer right gotcha i know you came across a lot of people uh you work like you said you worked at three different breweries all together who would you say inspired you the most in the beer industry obviously todd mott is kind of uh, he was my obi-wan um and i really getting in, into the business and um, love the reference by the way me, yeah i mean he, he taught me like you know i was, I was a chemical engineering undergrad uh i went to uc davis learned all the like the science and all the technical stuff that went into brewing right right but uh but, i mean todd moth is came from he was he has his master's in ceramics and comes to came to brewing very on the artistic side and um you know, basically, like, the way he explained it was, like, to make clay, you mix certain types of, like, dirt together with a certain type of water, and you need it for a certain amount of time, and then you bake it at a certain, in the kiln, you know, and then to make beer, you use certain types of malt with a certain type of water, and you have certain types of hops, and then you ferment it at a certain, you know, it's good. He was looking at it, that kind of, how do you mix stuff together, and he really helped me tremendously on my recipe, recipe development side of my brewing world. Right. And taught me a ton of stuff you can learn from a book. You know, you gotta, it's, brewing is a, it, it is a trade. You gotta learn from a master, really, kind of to get the ins and outs of making beer high quality and delicious, uh, for sure. So Tom Mott is definitely, um, my number one on the list. Uh, the number two is, uh, Dave Yarrington, um, the former executive brewer of Smoney Nose. He really taught me the, how to be a, you know, how to be a brewer in a distribution, in a distribution like large scale brewing world, and how to look at stuff, and focusing a lot on the packaging, and like learning about DO levels and quality control, and and things you can do, like ways to implement these like crazy brew pub techniques. But how do you? You can't. They're not. They don't directly translate when you scale up. You know how to 
how to think how to think like a like a pub brewer, but then be able to scale those up to larger larger batches and you know get more efficiencies out of stuff. And um, so he's kind of he's definitely my number two would be Dave Arrington. Awesome. Is there a defining moment for you that kind of like after you opened your brewery? where things kind of, like, hit and you knew things were going in the right direction? When we first opened, like, it was, the IPA was, I mean, it still is. I see the IPAs, the style IPAs, they're still the number one seller. Um, but my father-in-law being, you know, one of my investors, one of my favorite things, I used to bring him the Smutty Knowles Old Brown down when I came down, came down to visit and uh, to enjoy with him. He loves, he loved that beer. Right. And him being one of the investors, I'm like, don't worry, Steve, I'll make sure to have a brown ale for you um, in the rotation. And I thought I'd just be something I'd be making every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, the granola brown, with that, that beer, when that started taking over Newcastle lines everywhere, and we started making like 60 barrel batches of it, and I was like, holy cow, this is crazy. Like, it was the first beer that like took off for us. It was like, to see like, oh, people, people like my beer, and people actually want it, and people are ordering it and reordering it. Right. Uh, so that was a really cool experience um, that I got to just recently relive uh, probably like a year or two ago when we launched Hazy, um, our, our CT style uh, New England, excuse me, CT style Juicy Hazy IPA. Um, and that was another one where Granola Brown had always been, uh, I blew my mind how much Granola Brown we were making, and now we're making just as much hazy and it's slowly going to be more hazy than Granola Brown very shortly, uh, which is, you know, that's, that was fun. Um, but just like, not talking about specific brands, just like the business in general. Uh, when we had our, our uh, one year anniversary party, like at the brewery, uh, you know, we've been open for a year. The tasting room had been working pretty well. And we decided to say, Hey, you know, we're in an industrial park, you know, backed up to the, back up to the woods. We just put up some tags with ropes on them and just blocked off this whole back area of pavement. And right. said, Hey, we're going to throw ourselves a party. And like so many people showed up and we had, you know, kegs outside on jockey boxes, serving pints up there and just threw a really big old party. And just the amount of people that showed up and everyone that was having such a great time. I was like, all right, this is great. Like people, people were into this. People were looking for this, and you know we're we're starting to we're hitting all the right notes right now. So that was right that that first that one year anniversary was a big one for sure. Yeah, let's hope that uh, we could do something like that again very very soon. You know. Yes. That'd uh, be the end of the end of August is officially when we do our anniversary parties. Right. Uh, I mean, we opened we opened in uh, Cinco de Mayo was the first day we walked through, so May fifth, right, uh, two thousand fourteen. But you know, we walked into what is was Calvary Brewing Company, so. All the tanks were empty. There was no beer on. You know, we, the bar wasn't. There was just nothing. So it, you know, it took us a while to dial in the recipe, make enough beers, get out the distro, get our tasting room built out. So by August, we were kind of like, all right, we we're ready to. We we're ready to start really like saying, hey, we're open, open. Right, right. right. And um, so that's so August had the the thirtieth is officially. I think it's the thirtieth and thirty first. One of the two is Tom's birthday. So it's like, hey, let's just throw ourselves a big opening grand opening party on my birthday you know like all right let's do it and that's when it just like blew up and I was like all right this is great so that was that was fun for sure yeah it seems it seems like it was so far far away when you can actually uh do things like that you know i know but, it'll come back yeah i, can't wait. I know i know I can't wait sorry i'm getting <laughs> i'm getting emotional over here part of me oh, <laughs> 
So, uh, how important for you is a is a mental break from your work? We started, you know, you know, moved down to Connecticut. I was living with the in laws because we didn't have a house, so we just moved into the in laws with my 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 oldest son and my wife pregnant with our second. Uh, my second child was actually born while we were living there. Right, and it was, and I was just working crazy hours um, and very focused on the brewery for the first oh, good two years. You know, it's just having that mental break I'm learning is uh, super important. Um, you know, it, it, my mental break has been changing throughout the years, kind of varying from running because my father-in-law did a lot of, um, did a lot of marathons when he was younger. So I used to go running with him, which helped. But uh, my most recently I picked up uh, disc golf. Disc and, golf. Uh, okay. Disc golf right now is my mental break. And it is amazing. Gotcha. What do you think for you has been the biggest change in the last five years in the brewing industry? I mean, top pre-COVID, first and foremost, like when we started in 2014, um, breweries were, they were like a brewery tasting room. It was a fun destination place for people to like go check out, you know? Right. And like everyone wanted to be like, like, oh, I want to like sit next to the fermenter and just be in a brewery while I'm drinking a beer. And um, that's kind of, you know, when we started, that was, that was the peak. That was the, so that's kind of what we went for. We went for having that tasting room. Just like we set up tables next to the, like the glycol feed of the back of our fermenters and people hung out and they felt like they were just drinking in the brewery with us, which is right. Um, and then literally like every brewery, even not even brew pub that opened up after us, they opened a really amazing, like air conditioned restaurant that had, you know, a fire pit and an indoor fireplace and like, Bocce courts, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, there's a brewery attached to this place. You know, it, right. people like were opening these big. They it's, weren't opening like brewery destination locations. They were opening a really like a restaurant, like, kinda, restaurant spa with a brewery attached. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, the fire, like stone fireplaces. Like it was just like the stuff that was opening was just like holy cow! People are, like sinking cash into this, like into like that side, and like that in hindsight, twenty twenty. I mean, yeah, they were they were focused on the the customer experience and how making their customers as comfortable as possible within their space. Right. Cause that makes them stay longer and that makes them drink more beer. And like, yeah, it all made sense. But I think that was like kind of the biggest push, the change for me where it's like the breweries that opened more recently and very focused on, they were very focused on that, you know, the restaurant side of it, you know, I don't mm-hmm. want to say the tasting room side of it, right. making it as close to like a comfortable restaurant experience for people as possible. Um, I mean, post, you know, post COVID, that's all out the window now. And, and like, again, I'm, like I mentioned earlier, super lucky that we had, we were forced into just like forced into making high quality beer for distribution. And that's what's saving us right now. And there's a lot of people, like a lot of people that are scrambling trying to figure out distribution that had, you know, there, there's breweries that opened that were just, I want to make beer for my taps only and sell cans out the back door and crawlers, you know? Right. And yeah. They were doing amazing and they were probably making more money than we were at that point. You know, so there was, everything was direct sales and there was no having to, there was, there was people lined up every weekend picking up cases and cases and they were good, you know? Um, so now the, having that change of the COVID thing is really, I'm curious to see what's going to happen as breweries open into the future right now. I think it's kind of really interesting to see. How people have what people learn from this COVID experience, and you know, definitely outside seating. People are gonna have a lot of outside seating. Yeah, uh, for, for sure. They open for sure. <laughs> yeah, it will be interesting. 
interesting to see that that change again. Um, I mean, ultimately, the the you know keeping it simple is just like, hey, we're we're going to focus on quality of beer, and and this is a brewery, you know, rather than opening a restaurant because night, you know, it kind of changes the whole dynamic now with this whole situation. So it's kind of crazy. What was this? I love this question, but I, I especially this would be interesting hearing from you. I'm sure you because you got into home brewing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. at a young age. What was your gateway beer into the craft beer oh, world? Easy, green <laughs> green baby, straight out of pale ale. That was the that was the. Um, you are not the only person to say that. I've heard that numerous yeah, times. It's just, uh, I mean, you're drinking Keystone Lights at a keg party. And someone has this like crazy stubby neck green label beer. You're like, what is that thing? You taste it, and it was just like, yeah, interesting pine, and just like, like, what is going on? This is amazing, right? You know, and that was kind of that was definitely my gateway beer. I mean, I I dabbled in the number nine from uh, Magic Hat for sure, and then then we started doing the blind nines. We did the the, the blind space past that with some uh, number nine and um, fifty fifty blends and. You know, then like, you know, then from there it's just kind of like just realizing all the West Coast stuff was stone and. Right. I mean, yeah, Sierra Nevada is like the OG. I mean, they're they're, they're the they're my definitely gateway into craft. Yeah, they're great. And this is my first time asking this because I figure I would I would ask a uh, a real hardcore brewer. Um, what would be <laughs> one home brewing tip that you'd want to pass on to somebody? I mean, the obvious is take good notes. Um, right. The thing is, like, if you like a beer, and you love how a beer is like, you make this beer and it's great. Literally, make it again. Does it taste the same? If it does, you're doing stuff right. You know, like that's the big thing. Where it's like consistency. There's so many variables within brewing that you have control over that you need to be able to replicate. Um, I mean, my brewing professor at UC Davis was. I mean, it's Davis. It's it's wine country up there, and they have a UC Davis has a huge viticulture program. Right. Um, and the brewing program when I was there was still small and kind of off campus and not as big as it is now. Um, but my brewing professor was like, to make good wine, you have to have good grapes, you know, because you're basically smashing the grapes. If you have a bad growing year, like, it's going to come out in the wine. There's no way to fix it along the way. Right. He's like, to make good beer, you have to have a good brewer because, you know, you can take, you can take inferior ingredients but using them the right way, blending them with other ingredients, uh, getting more extract out of your malts, like taking this year's crop year with the different ratios of alpha acids and mercines and all the different oil components and changing how you use those within the boil and or within dry hopping. I mean, you just have all this control, like yeast fermentation temperature, what yeast strain you're using. I mean, there's just, as a brewer, you have complete control from the time you're starting to crack that grain to the finish to the glass to like right. make the beer and make it better um, but because there's so many variables there's so many ways so many steps along the way you can screw up too so of my course. biggest thing for a home brewer would be like you made this beer like you and your buddies love it like if you can make it three more times in a row and make it taste the exact same every time now you get somewhere you know that's where it comes down to having making sure you can produce quality but also consistency right Consistent deliciousness. Yeah, that's the key. <laughs> of course. Uh, so what's uh, some advice you would give to somebody that wanted to open their own brewery? 
in a drive-thru. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Would it be a bad idea? Would it be a bad idea? No, I mean, that's buy an old, buy an old Wendy's and keep the drive-thru. Um, it would be really interesting to see how, like, if the laws stay the same or change or back. I mean, I always play in a brewery um, for expansion, which I've learned is kind of, I did from the beginning, um, which is helpful. But, like, if you need, if you're like, hey, I need to upgrade my, like, I'm installing a glycol chiller. Uh, I want to start with four, four, seven barrel fermenters. Size that, like, don't buy the chiller that's going to run four, seven barrel fermenters. Buy the chiller the next size, or if you can afford it, next two sizes up so that you can easily run those four tanks. And then if you need to put more tanks in, you're just dropping new glycol and putting tanks in versus having to do a whole big expansion. Right. Um, and then, so always, always be planning for expansion, but don't, and then also number two would be don't discount distribution at this point where it's having a quality product off your tap lines is important, but being able to get it to the masses and more than one way versus your taps and or, and or selling growlers. Um, which I mean, growlers are a whole other story. I'll, I'm going to, don't talk about those yet, but, um, but yeah, right. plan for plan for packaging from day one and be able to know how to know how to put beer in, into cans or bottles or quality wise. You know, that's the big one for me. Okay. And did you uh, happen to have a funny story for us? There's so many. Um, <laughs> Good. That's great. Yeah. Uh, talked about like brewing and recipe development and all that and group hub versus packaging facilities and different size vessels. So, I mean, one of the, you know, you're always learning. The big thing is always a learning curve and you're learning something new. Um, so I had this one beer that I thought up at, uh, the Portsmouth Brewery, which I thought it'd be like a, uh, an imperial, uh, winter rye, you know, so it's a 55% rye malt. Right. Obviously, I didn't put it, I didn't put any, uh, flake product in it or that helped with any sort of, um, uh, runoff. But, uh, so I did this really, because I wanted a big sticky mouthfeel from the rye, some spice note. That'd be great for the winter time. So I made this imperial rye beer um, that I mashed that mashed in, and then as I started running off, I got maybe three of the seven barrels I was trying to get out of it, and my mash on just stuck so hard. All that gluten just stuck to the bottom, like wasn't able to get any liquid through. Ugh. I backed, you know, I underleaded it. I mean, the Portsmouth Brewery uh, system was a 95, 92. I think it was a 92, um, uh, JV Northwest, like single, single outlet gravity mash tun, you know, so it was very, very simple. Um, so back, you know, underletting wasn't as effective as I really wanted it to, just basically added more water into the system. And it just, after what should have been a two hour runoff, after about eight hours, I was like, I'm not getting any more out of this mash tun. So I, uh, ended up diluting down my, wort that I had in the kettle, boiling it, and uh, turning it into a, a session rye IPA. Um, but that still left me with this mash tun full of sticky, sticky, sticky malt. And right. I didn't realize how much water as well. So mashing up, um, trying to get that out of the mash tun is a, uh, and if you've ever been to Portsmouth Brewery, the mash tun's up on a platform. So you come from the, the cellar, which is in the basin, up these spiral staircases. And you go up another four steps up to the mash tun door. And, um, 
and we hooked this slide in to the, the mask on door and the, the mask would hit the slide, roll down and into trash cans and we'd roll out in the back alleyway. So in this case, I cracked the door and it was like a little bit of water started coming out around the manway, which is like normal. I was expecting it because of how thick and how much, how crappy of a runoff I was having. Right. So I kind of let it drip dry until it stopped running. And then I tried to do this big, quick open door, put the slide in. And I just got hit in the chest with hot, sticky, wet mass. So I jump out of the way, and the whole mass on just emptied out the door, straight down those spiral staircases, uh-huh. and just flooded the basement with wet, sticky mass. So after my eight-hour runoff, I had to spend another six to eight hours literally just cleaning, getting all that, like shoveling the, like hand shoveling the mass, bringing it up the staircase, putting it on. Uh, it was. It was a nightmare. Oh, that sounds... Learning, de- learning that's experience, a- right? Learning experience. Yeah. Funny now. I'm sure then uh-huh. it was very uh-huh. agitating. <laughs> yeah. My, my eight-hour day was a solid 19-hour day. But, yeah. you know, yeah, for work. sure. <laughs> so, I have a little uh, segment called Quick Fire Five. Five quick, que- right. five quick questions, be related. Ready? Right. Hit it. Awesome. Uh, what are your beers that you would recommend someone try? Um, Granola Brown, for sure. I mean, it's been our flagship forever. It's a beautiful brown ale. Um, and then if you're into Hazy's, Hazy New England style, I mean, try our Hazy. It's definitely, it's unique to the style, and it's it's, it's cleaner and crisper than a lot of the Hazy's, but still has that beautiful juiciness to it. Gotcha. Uh, favorite brewery other than your own? Ooh. I mean, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, just because it has my, you know, my Desert Island Gateway beer being made there for sure. Uh, I mean, there's so many good breweries out there, so it's really hard to pick up favorite. But quick, that's my quick fire fire answer to that. You got it. Uh, favorite style of beer? The one in my hand. Which is? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, beer is so situational for me, so it's. I really enjoy food and beer pairings, uh, drinking seasonally. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of things that go into deciding what I'm drinking. So right. it's uh, it's hard to say that because I, I drink them all. It just depends what I'm eating and what beer I just drank and what time of year it is. So that's why I can easy one just say, but what in my hand? Because it changes. You got it. <laughs> so barrel-aged, imperial, or both? Yeah, I love my barrels. Um, like my brewing, my brewing hat loves putting stuff in b- different barrels and getting that characteristic and those vanilla. Um, the uh, the barrel age, the people out there love them, love them, but there's a lot of people that don't like them. So, right. My brewing hat says yes. My business hat says no. <laughs> gotcha. You have one keg of beer to hold you over for a two week quarantine. Which beer are you choosing? Probably my hazy would be my go-to. Just to have one keg of beer for two weeks. Awesome. Well, Tyler, that's all I have for you, man. Great, man. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Order Podcast with Tyler Jones of Black Hog Brewing Company in Oxford, Connecticut. Thanks, man. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Tyler Jones, co-owner of Black Hog Brewing Company in Oxford, Connecticut. Whether you're passing through, you live in the area, just visiting a friend nearby, you should definitely check them out. 
Also, give them a follow on social media. Every other Sunday, I'll be releasing a new episode, so subscribe and you'll never miss one. Also, be sure to check us out on social media because, hey man, why not? I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Order podcast. You stay safe out there.